Hi, my name is Evan, and I use he, him pronouns. And my name is Ian, and I use they, them pronouns. And we are... The Baker Baker Street Street Regulars, a podcast where we are taking a queer magnifying glass to the Sherlock Holmes canon and its many adaptations. Hi, Eileen. Hi, my name is Eileen. I use she, her pronouns. Longtime listener, first time caller. (laughs) You're our first guest on this season of the Baker Street Regulars. Oh, it's great to be here. We've talked in the podcast before about our experiences with the Sherlock Holmes stories. Can you give us a bit of an intro to your experiences with them? Yeah. So growing up, I liked like the kitty mystery books. Like I really liked the boxcar children. And then one day my dad was kind of like, here, have this. And it was the, the first Sherlock Holmes case I read was the case of the speckled band, which spoiler alert, everyone, it's a snake that did it. And I thought, wow, this guy is great. And so then I went into a deep dive and started reading all of them and thought it was real great. And then, you know, you get older, you start watching all the old movies. And then I was 17 when BBC Sherlock came out. So you can all see where that went. (laughs) That was formative for a lot of us, I think. (laughs) So had you seen any of these old movies from the 1930s and 40s? Yeah, I bought my dad some for his birthday for us to watch together one year. And I can't remember all of them, but I think the ones that I saw were mostly the like the ones set in the 1940s, like the wartime ones. What's your favorite adaptation of the Holmes stories? I think straight up, like, the best Sherlock Holmes is, I think, Basil Rathbone. I think, like, he gets the charm right, he gets the energy right, he gets the, like, direct delivery right. But for, like, Holmes and Watson as a pair together, I actually think it's RDJ and Jude Law. Like, kind of a hot take. But I think Jude Law's Watson is so good. The way Jude Law's face looks, he looks just like the cute little illustrations in my books growing up of Dr. Watson. And I'm always like, it's him. It's Watson. That's your Watson. I love that. It's adorable. Before we asked you to do the podcast, what was the last adaptation of Sherlock Holmes that you engaged with? I just got done reading a book called The Word is Murder by Anthony Horowitz, I think is the last name. And it's kind of like this like, crusty old detective has a writer follow him around and like dictate his mysteries. So that, that, yeah, it's, it's a Sherlock adaptation. I also read a lot of Agatha Christie, like a lot of Agatha Christie so not that that's the same but like I really like Poirot so I like the whole like here's this guy and he follows me around and he writes down everything that I do and he thinks I don't know what I'm doing sometimes but so the whole tastings Watson dynamic I think one of the things that we're trying to figure out over the course of this season is like what are the boundaries of a Sherlock Holmes story is and I like your inclusion of the Anthony Horowitz story as uh, a good example, because I think like that checks the boxes, like clever detective and down to earth writer who follows them around is like, I think that's the dynamic. I think that's what makes Sherlock Holmes, Sherlock Holmes. And Watson. Shall we dive into the Hound of the Basketballs 1939? Yes. Yeah. Okay. 
So some fast facts. The studio wasn't initially sure how well a Sherlock Holmes film would fare, which I think had some plot effects on this film that we'll get into. But this was so successful and so popular that it kicked off a seven-year period where the two leads, Nigel Bruce and Basil Rathbone, who play Watson and Holmes, respectively, produced 14 Sherlock Holmes films in seven years, while also producing a large amount of radio story episodes about the characters as well. And they starred in them as well? And they also starred in them. And we're going to listen to one of those next week. Now, just for context, this movie came out the same year as both The Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind. So it was a pretty, like, poppin' year for movies. Although I will say this film feels older than that. (laughs) It absolutely does. And the changes are all really starting to make a lot more sense. So top of the film, we get a cast list. And what is sort of extraordinary about this is that, like, what I always heard about these movies is that these are the Basil Rathbone, Nigel Bruce, Sherlock Holmes movies, but the above the title cast are Richard Green, Basil Rathbone, and Wendy Berry. Right. Nigel Bruce does not make it. <laughs> Poor Nigel. Okay. The more I learn about this man, I feel bad for all the things I've said about his Watson. Not wrong, but bad. Now, tell me about Nigel Bruce. You said you did some research. Like, he just seems like a really chill guy. Like, really liked his wife and his kids. And, like, was, like, captain of some sort of British sporting team, like rugby. I don't know. And, like, Watson was his big thing. The interesting part is about how his portrayal affected, like, future portrayals. But after I complain about it in the context of the movie, then I'll get into that. I think definitely that's a thing we want to talk about because this is only like 30 some odd years after the publication of the novel had the Baskervilles. Mm -hmm. It's one of the first really major adaptations of the story, which is why we're starting with it, that kept public attention. And it did really set how both of these characters are viewed in a lot of ways. In the subsequent 13 films, Nigel Bruce and Basil Rathbone shared top billing. Right. I think the the main reason why Richard Green, who plays Henry Baskerville, is top billing is because he was the newest big star for 20th Century Fox. He was 20 at the time of like signing on. So he was like 21 when he did this film. And he was a huge success and kind of the heartthrob of 20th Century Fox at the time. He is a little cutie. You certainly don't want him to die. He's certainly more present in the movie than I feel like he is in the book. Yes. They definitely wanted to make it a movie about, like, a dashing hero. I think they were like, just in case people aren't interested in the Sherlock Holmes stuff, there's, like, a dashing all-American square-jawed man having a romance, which is so not what the book's about. So the, the jokes on them. There's already a dashing hero in it, but once again, I just really love Basil Rathbone. So, so then the third person who is credited above the title is Wendy Berry, who plays Ms. Stapleton, and we'll get into it. We'll get into it. I legitimately did not realize how much they had changed the changed the plot, and so when like 
Henry and Ms. Stapleton start making out, I was like, wow, they're really like, this shit's wild. They're taking it far. Okay. <laughs> so the film begins with some text, some text on the screen. I took a picture because I thought it was hilarious. It says, 1889, in all England, there is no district more dismal than that vast expanse of primitive wasteland, the moors of Dartmoor in Devonshire. So already we hate the British. <laughs> already this film is like... Of all the miserable places of that miserable little island, this is the worst. <laughs> this is the worst. So the film starts in Dartmoor instead of starting in London with Holmes and Watson. Mm-hmm. We see the death of Sir Charles Baskerville. Right. Who is running from something mm-hmm. and then collapses of an apparent heart attack. And then a bearded man tries to steal his pocket watch. Right. And then runs away. And we and we hear the faint little, oh, that's my howl. That's good. <laughs> and then there's a whole other scene in Dartmoor, <laughs> which seems to be some sort of community meeting. They seem to have gathered <laughs> together all of the characters. It was the inquest, right? It was the, like, autopsy. But for yeah. some reason, just, like, everybody's there. Yeah, it's a big public autopsy. <laughs> it's a big public <laughs> meeting with a coroner where everybody, even people who weren't there, get to weigh in on what they think the cause of death was. <laughs> Which is how they did it in 1889, I guess. And it's where we get pretty much most of the rest of our cast. Yeah, we meet everybody who isn't Holmes and Watson, basically. Yeah. I think the Berrymans aren't there. Right. I should also mention that in the book, the housekeepers of Basketball Hall mm-hmm. are named the Barrymores. It's a married couple. Mm-hmm. And in this film, they're the Berrymans because it was late 1930s and there was a famous Barrymore family <laughs> acting mm-hmm. in movies. And I think they didn't, I didn't want them to be confused, I guess. False advertising of being like, oh, there are Barrymores in this movie? Awesome. Wait, wait. Right. Probably, yeah. Where's Ethel Barrymore when you need her? Where's Drew Barrymore? <laughs> I think she would have made a great Watson. Now that I would see. Oh, only Watson would just be out in the rain the entire time. Every time there's a rainstorm, she's just out there. <laughs> Watson's out on the moors again. <laughs> <laughs> it's raining. Oh no, we got to find Watson. So yeah, so we have this, this coroner's inquest where which is also a community meeting where everyone shares their opinions about what happened, which is, which is very funny, a very funny way to meet the characters. There's the Stapletons, mm-hmm. who I think in the movie, Mr. Stapleton is a scientist of some kind. I don't think he's a naturalist like he's in the book. He, he, yeah, he like collects dead bugs. And his wife, there's Dr. Mortimer. And his wife, there's a, there's Franklin, who's an old man who thinks that it was definitely murder. Although based on what I cannot say. Well, you say Stapleton's wife, but in this film, it's his half-sister. Always do that. No, it's his stepsister, because they didn't want her to be related to Henry, because that was why I was trying to figure out what was happening. Right, she has to be a stepsister, because she's not genetically related to evil, I guess. And also then not genetically related to Henry, because spoilers about everyone being related. (laughs) Right. Right, she's not a basketball. I forgot about that. That's important. So then we finally cut to London. And Sherlock Holmes is there, and he's beautiful, and his hair is great, and it's just shellacked back so tightly. (laughs) And then Nigel Bruce is also there. And fun fact, 
Nigel Bruce is three years younger than Basil Rathbone, which you would never guess looking at them or watching oh. them or hearing them. And what happens? Does Dr. Mortimer just like, oh, he forgets his stick? Because that's right. the whole thing. Well, and, and this is the thing is that this happens in the book, too, that Dr. Mortimer has forgotten his stick. But we get this one like new detail. Because in the book, the, the case starts with Sherlock and Watson at home and the, the stick is left behind. And there's this like kind of, I don't know, almost sweet moment where Sherlock is like, we've been working together for many years. You must have picked up some of my methods. Why don't you make some deductions about this walking stick? And and then after that happens, Dr. Mortimer shows up and is like, actually, I've got a case for you. But in this version, what happens is that Sherlock has been following the story of Sir Henry Baskerville in the papers and is already already suspects that foul play is afoot and that Sir Henry Baskerville will not survive if he goes out to, to Baskerville Hall. And then we did the stick scene. Right. And it is in the stick scene that we see that Nigel Bruce's Watson... What, what, what can we say about Nigel Bruce's Watson? I'm trying to be nice. Right. Often... When people talk about Nigel Bruce's Watson, the word bumbling comes up. Yes. Yes, it does. Because it's accurate. It's also like doddering. Yeah. He, he, Watson in the book is an intelligent man who just isn't as smart as Sherlock Holmes. Exactly. Nigel Bruce is playing a version of Watson who is like, it's. I think it's supposed to be like a comedic idiot sidekick. Very much that. So they do the scene where Sherlock has him make deductions about the stick, the walking stick, but instead of like letting him down gently, because what Sherlock effectively says in the book is you are not yourself brilliant, but you are a conductor of light, which is still a little rude, but he's, but he's effectively saying like, hearing you make your deductions helps me the way you have of getting into this problem helps me see the problem more clearly like expressing some sort of relationship of mutual assistance instead he's just kind of like oh no you're entirely wrong old boy <laughs> well it's very that's very vaudevillian we're having like your straight man who's like smarter and you know able to figure it out and like you know. Yeah, it's very Abbott and Costello. There's like the tall, thin man and the short, fat man. And the short, fat man has to be funny. And the tall, thin man has to be the straight man. And what's funny? Being dumb. Right. <laughs> Different time. That's a really interesting comparison. I never thought of it like that. That makes a lot of sense. So then Dr. Mortimer arrives. What an icon. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, like... Truly just the creepiest man. Well, what's incredible is that later in this series of 14 movies, they cast the same actor who plays Dr. Mortimer to play Moriarty. They do! Oh, oh my gosh. Yep, they, yep, 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 yep. Okay, I thought he looked familiar, but I thought it was just like, oh, it's a movie from 1939 and everyone's like directly staring into the camera. They all look the same. Okay. I, I, wow. bet it was because, I bet it was because of Dr. Mortimer's eyes, because his eyes are bulging. Yeah. He walked on the screen, and I was like, yeah, that would be a man who would ask, like, Sherlock Holmes for his skull. This makes sense. And then they just... Because in the book, he's like, 
when you die, may I please have your skull? And that they just don't have that be a part of the movie, but it's, I guess, implied through, once again, the very, very vivid eye contact. Yes. He explains the backstory. He says, don't worry, I won't bore you. It's quite short. And then it isn't. It's it's about as much as like a five page essay that you would write in college with a work cited too. Oh yeah, they do. It's nineteen thirty, so they zoom into a page on a book, and then there's like hands turning pages, and they're like over top of it, they're superimposing video they filmed with actors showing the story. So we see this story. Hugo Baskerville is in Baskerville Hall. He's drinking with the fellas, and he's like, "I got a woman up in the room." And they're like, let's see this woman. And he's like, okay. And so they go up and guess what? She went out the window. And so he's like, I gotta go get my lady. We actually never see the woman too. We don't see the woman. They did not cast this actor. (laughs) They did not cast it. And the other fellows are like, just guys being guys, you know, just being like, oh, there's no woman. (laughs) But then when he leaves, they're like, let's just mention the devil three times in quick succession. Right. He says the devil will take him. The the devil, you know, like. (laughs) It's like a devil, devil, devil. (laughs) There's some salt over my shoulder. Right. (laughs) And then in his pursuit of the woman, he is set upon by some sort of giant dog. Right. A hound, you might say. Mm-hmm. And it's just a dog. It's just a dog, yeah. They cast a dog. Is it the same dog from later in the film? I don't think so. Okay. I think that was a different dog. So I've interacted with, like, you know, Sherlock Holmes content for a very long time. It took me until literally watching this movie to be like, oh, and they're also being hounded by the curse. Every oh how clever. That's good. Think about that. That that Arthur Conan Doyle. He sure can write him. He sure can write him. So we cut back to modern day eighteen eighty nine. And Mortimer is like <laughs> So, Holmes, what'd you think of this? And Holmes is like, I don't think of this. <laughs> but I suspect there'll be a moita. Right. Doctor Mortimer says, What should I do with Henry Baskerville? Holmes is like I think you should bring him to see me tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Implying, I suppose, that he'll take the case. Or implying, wah, 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 wah. So we cut to the arrival of Henry Baskerville in London. Mm-hmm. He's traveled by boat. He met a lady on the boat. Right. <laughs> and he is not interested in this lady. Like, let's get that out of the way. Right. I love that the, the filmmakers are like, first things first, you have to know that he's very handsome and women want him. And he's hard to get. Remember, he was a heartthrob. He was a heartthrob. That Richard Green. In the book, he shows up to Holmes's flat saying, I received a note at the hotel. In this version, it gets thrown through the window of his carriage tied to a rock. Right. Which... Wait. Which actually in this version is never explained. I was about to say, do we ever talk about who throws the rock? No. And the thing is, we talked about the story of the book two episodes ago, so we all know what happens in the book. In the book, Ms. Stapleton accompanied her husband, the moiterer, to London and then sent the letter to the hotel to try to warn him that he shouldn't come to Baskerville Hall because she thought that her husband was up to no good and would try to kill him, which is, which is true. 
In this one, I cannot imagine the character of Miss Stapleton accompanying her brother, rather, stepbrother, to London because she seems completely unaware that he is even suspicious. And I also don't picture her throwing a rock through a carriage window. (laughs) She doesn't seem the type. For some reason in my mind, and maybe this is just me, you know, wanting to give reason to it, you know, I, I'm imagining like maybe Mrs. Berriman or someone doing it. I think the only thing that makes sense is that it has to be Sableton and it has to be the, the beginning of him trying to scare Henry. Mm. Because this is the thing. The movie never explains any of this. But the murder of Sir Charles Baskerville in the book, Stapleton, like, built up this atmosphere of fear so that when the dog finally appeared, it was so frightening that he had a heart attack. Right. So maybe he's trying to, like, start some fear in Henry's heart so that he's more afraid of the dogs when the dog shows up. He's... But he's a young, healthy man. He's not going to have a heart attack. No. I don't think it makes sense. And also then he wouldn't, like, try and kill him because unless he was like, all right, here's plan B, which I'm going to start in case plan A of just, like, shooting him doesn't work. He does try to shoot him the next day. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a departure from the novel in terms of the facts of the case, but not really in terms of the spirit of the situation, because Holmes says that Stapleton came to London to try to kill Henry there, but then didn't because Sherlock was prowling around. Hmm. So I think the idea makes sense that he might try to shoot him. Right. But I I guess it doesn't really make, I don't want to say it doesn't make sense, but it's just like, it feels just added on for extra suspense. Yeah. Instead so. of instead of somebody just like watching. I think there are one or two places in this movie where they have made a choice to make things more suspenseful than they are in the book that I think is positive. And then a couple times in the movie where they've done the exact opposite. <laughs> and slightly more like action packed just to like give it more pizzazz. Yeah. So as in the book, Sherlock assigns Watson to take care of the case and says he has to stay in London. They travel down to Dartmoor. This is one of my biggest issues with this adaptation is how in the book, Sherlock very clearly says to Watson, I'm giving you Henry Baskerville to like keep in your charge, like take care of him. I trust you. It said explicitly. And then in this one, Sherlock turns to Henry Baskerville and goes, Take care of Watson! Right. I'm saddling you with this oaf. It's like he's a horse or something. Or just like giving a pet that you don't want. (laughs) Right. Right. And also because Watson is this character, you sort of wonder what the value of him doing this is. Like, is he going to be helpful and notice the things that Sherlock isn't? Spoiler alert, no. <laughs> so the the big journey to Baskerville Hall. Every, everything's creepy. Everything's creepy. Everyone is creepy. We meet the Berrymans, although we've seen them before technically because they rushed over to Sir Charles Baskerville when he died. Right. We also get like the whole like, don't go into the bog or mire over which, there. Which never matters. No. In the Berrymans, the two housekeepers are just very creepy. A lot of like looks and mm-hmm. them being, being weird about things. Also just like, their appearance is very gaunt. 
Like they look like, no offense to them, skeletons, skeleton people. Yeah. This movie really relies heavily on a lot of just like creepy staring to make its points. I like some of the creepy staring. Oh, oh, no, no, no. And they, they do make the point. Like, we got it. So Watson is alone in his room and he's writing his first letter to Holmes. Although I'm not sure what he has to write about. Just like, the house sure is creepy. Everyone's kind of creepy here. And I love you. I love you, honey. <laughs> right. And his door handle begins to turn. And the door begins to slowly open. It's so weird. Because isn't it? So it's just weird. Henry. It's just like, Henry entering in the says, possible way. And then he says, I thought you would be asleep. Why are you coming into his room if you think he'd be? Like, what are you doing? This is so weird, Henry. Right. Like, the house is already getting to you. Yeah. <laughs> he, 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 he probably wanted to walk into the room and just stand over his bed and just stare at him. So... He he has come to Watson because, quote, someone is prowling around the house. It's okay. Henry. <laughs> well, right. he's Henry. also prowling. That's his house. Henry's doing the most prowling because when they actually go to investigate, it's just Berryman at the window with the candle. That's not prowling. He's just standing there. He's just standing, right. So this is the beginning of the escaped convict plot. So they actually, unlike the book, they don't introduce that there is an escaped convict on the moor, but we have introduced that the person who is in the cab is a bearded man. And we also saw the bearded man who ran over to Charles's body. So I think we're supposed to suspect him because Watson and Henry realized that the candle was a signal. And there's, there's another candle out of the moor and decide to go investigate. Again, they don't know who it is or what it is. They find the candle there's a bearded man there who throws a rock at the candle to put it out right. and then runs away and they try to run after him but are unsuccessful. Yeah. And they have a really great interaction. It might be my favorite line in the movie, actually. On the way back, they hear the howling of the hound and then they're both a little unsettled but they don't want to like say they're unsettled. And they're talking about this, the curse of the Hound of the Baskervilles. And one of them says, you don't believe that nonsense, do you? And the other one says, no more than you do. I love, I love that line. <laughs> it's a good line. <laughs> the right energy for the rest of the, the film. We cut to the next day and we meet the Stapletons. Uh, First one, then the other. Right. First we meet Mr. Stapleton, Henry, right? Is that his name? Or? No. Oh. John, John Stapleton, John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt Stapleton. Can you, imagine, can you imagine if they were both called Henry? You know, two sides of the same coin. <laughs> when you think about it, they're both Henry Baskerville. Right, one's the Joker, one's Batman. They're the- <laughs> it, it, it's the Spider-Man meme where they're pointing at each other. <laughs> but we meet John Stapleton, and he's kind of too nice, kind of creepily nice. And this is literally the first moment that we meet him. You can kind of already tell. Okay, this is our bad guy. Well, you know he's a bad guy because he's got a thin mustache. Right. But also, like, he's just very nice. And no offense to the actor. He's very insincere. Yes. I got such a different read on the character of Stapleton from the book than the performance that this actor is bringing to it. I mean, Eileen, what did you think? I thought... I really got into the fact that 
when they beat him on the moors, I did kind of expect that he would come, like, skipping up with his little butterfly net, like, just like, oh, ho, ho, hello, I'm off to catch a butterfly, ha, ha, tee And so when it was more just like, hi, I'm John Normalman, good to meet you, it was a little jarring, I, yeah, it was I not what I was expecting. Yeah, I wrote Stapleton seems young and keen, which doesn't make sense. We would never get any backstory for Stapleton like we do in the book at the very end. Which is such a bummer, because I think it's so funny that the reason they were able to, like, peg him was the fact that he likes butterflies so much. Oh, and that he was a teacher once. Yeah. Yeah. But it was specifically, like, his, like, obsession with the butterflies. They were like, that teacher was also obsessed with butterflies. <laughs> the same man. No two different men could be both obsessed with butterflies. <laughs> the way he's described in the book is like he's a little creepy, and I like that about him, that he's like a little obsessive. And the version of him I pictured was much more like middle aged and like a little too into some things. I think that yes. that version of the character makes more sense to me. Like an obsessive. Right. But this guy just seems like a normal guy with some hobbies. <laughs> a normal guy who wants to kill you. Yeah. And then galloping along is Miss Stapleton. On a horse. On a horse. <laughs> she, she's just galloping. She has the coconuts. <laughs> she is John Stapleton's stepsister. Step-sister. Not wife. Not sister. Not sister. Stepsister. They're basically strangers. <laughs> They're good friends. <laughs> Right. They're effectively the least related they could be and still have it not be creepy that they live together. And not creepy that Henry is flirting. Immediately flirting. Yeah. And she's kind of immediately flirting back. Mm -hmm. Which shocked and amazed me. Not by my uh, 1939 propriety standards, but by the fact that I thought we were going to stick closer to the book adaptation. And I was like, she's flirting back. She's a married woman. This is drama. Right. <laughs> right. Well, and also, the entire thing in the book is that he's like, come away with me. And she's like, leave the moor. <laughs> like, you're not safe here. Get out. Get out. And there's none of that. She's like, ooh, I wish you would leave the moor. But also, you're kind of, you know, kind of cute. <laughs> right. But I wish you wouldn't be here. But also, I really like you. Yeah, but it's, it feels much more like, oh, it's there's a local legend. It doesn't seem safe. But, but hey. But hey. The Stapletons have a dinner. And the whole neighborhood's invited. Which is just them, the Mortimers, and Franklin. Yes. Like in the book, they mentioned that there's a village. But we never see it. We never see anyone from it. No. We also... We never see Laura Lyons. We never see Laura Lyons. But also, we got to talk about Franklin. <laughs> Yes. He's the best character in the book. By far. By far. And he's... Is he the best character in the movie? He's so Irish. I love him. He's so Irish. They've interpreted a lovable old crank as, like, effectively ornery house guest. Yes. (laughs) Like, like of course you invite him to the party, but then he accuses you of being a, quote, body snatcher at dinner. I, I loved that he was, like, Mean to say to John Stapleton, but also super like nice and friendly to Miss Stapleton. 
Yes. But he also was like, I have dirt on everybody here and then it never comes up again. <laughs> I was like, that seems useful. But during this dinner, we get a little uh, seance moment with Dr. Which Moore. doesn't happen in the book, right? Like, doesn't, I'm not making this up. Doesn't happen in the book. Doesn't. It also doesn't go anywhere plot-wise. No. Because Dr. Mortimer has a wife who also isn't in the book and she's into the occult. And she's like, no, I don't want to speak to the spirits. And then they leave the room. And then Dr. Mortar comes back and she's like, she's agreed to speak to the spirits. <laughs> so I don't know what happened in the 30 seconds she was off screen. But it's just like spooky scene setting effectively. Mm-hmm. Like they're trying to communicate with Sir Charles Baskerville to find out more about his death for some reason. And they don't. Yeah, it feels like by this point, like... They are trying to remind us, oh, this is the Hound of the Baskervilles, or like there is a Hound of the Baskervilles. Because up to this point, it's just a lot of uh, Henry and Miss Stapleton flirting, Watson being a bumbling, you know, bumble. It's just a lot of that. And I feel like this scene really got back to like, oh, this is supposed to be about the Hound of the Baskervilles and really remind you there's an evil spirit out there. Yes. One thing I will say about this movie and like a sense of tension is that the book does away with the tension of the, of the man on the moor. We pretty much find out immediately that he's an escaped convict and he's probably not related to the case. But in this one, they keep that tension going for, for most of the movie. There's a guy out there. We don't know why he's out there. We don't know if anyone else knows he's out there until he dies. Right. Do you think there would have been more tension if we had known he was a murderer, though? Because I thought that was something that, like, really undercut the tension. If it's just some guy on the moor, like, could be anybody. But if it's an escaped convict who killed a whole mess of people, then it's more like, oh, this is actually another viable suspect for the case. Totally. Yeah, because we don't even find out that he's a murderer until after he's dead. Right. This it, it felt like they really didn't want to do like this character plot, but because it's like an important part of the book, they they had to. Yeah. At this point in the narrative, we get a lot of flirting. Right. Henry, after the party, goes into Miss Stapleton. He says, "Do you like writing?" Insert joke <laughs> here. Thank you. And then invites her to go horseback riding with him, and they go out to the paleolithic stone huts and he's like do you think in the caveman times when a guy loved a girl he could tell her right out <laughs> and it it could, was... it, it's been like a day right i can't tell how long has passed but they've just met and he well because the lighting's so bad so we don't know how many days it's been i can never tell if it's day or night in this movie <laughs> at maximum i think it's three weeks like at one point later on that number gets thrown out there but also, what a terrible lead-in to asking some, like, to telling someone you're in love with them. Hey, remember how cave people were? Maybe we could be like that. He also is like, old cave couples, I bet he screamed when she burned his dinner. <laughs> Which is like a weird, like, I don't even know if it's sexist. I, it's not flirting, it's just like a weird thing he says. And then, and then Watson comes in, and wow. he's just like, "No, no, 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 no!" Watson doesn't. No, do no, because they're in. kissing. He waits until they're kissing, and then walks in. <laughs> he's, I forget what he says, but it's effectively like, 
Oh. oh, right. He does make that noise. <laughs> and then not only does Watson walk in, but an old peddler walks in. Well, before the peddler walks in, Henry is like, Miss Stapleton and I, we are getting married. Oh, right. He says, he says, we're engaged. And it really feels like it's been two days. <laughs> it just all happened in that, like, one span. Yeah. Also, he never proposed marriage. He was just like, I I must tell you that if I were a caveman, (laughs) I'd want to tell you that I love you. And she's like, oh, no. And then they kiss. And then he's like, we're engaged now. Mm -hmm. It's like playground rules. (laughs) That's the Moore rules right there. (laughs) You go to the Moors and you're like, cavemen, we're engaged. Yeah. And then a peddler comes in. This random old peddler with with like a walking stick. And he has a bunch of instruments in his bag that he's trying to, you know... To pedal. To pedal. So I know from the book that the only extra person on the moor should be Sherlock Holmes. And Master Disguise Sherlock Holmes, I'm like, that's probably Sherlock. I didn't recognize Basil Rathbone. Mm-hmm. I thought that he was disguised fairly well. Yeah. I It's a stupid character, so I knew it was Sherlock Holmes. I didn't know it was Basil, you know? So I think on that level, the acting is good. And Watson is similarly fooled. I mean, that's not the tall order. Like, he could just wear, like, a non-deerstalker cap, and I think Watson would be like, I say, who is this? Okay, we have to talk about the deerstalker cap, because the deerstalker cap thing comes from this movie. So in this movie, and apparently in the books as well, Holmes wears a top hat when he's in the city, and then when he goes into the country to be to be in his country mode, he wears a deerstalker hat. But because this movie like kicked off the Sherlock craze of the forties, and he wears a deerstalker cap for like roughly half of his appearance in the movie, it became the Sherlock Holmes hat. But that's the reason it's because of this movie that we have like Sherlock always wearing a deerstalker cap from now on, even though they're very goofy hats. Yeah, imagine if it was a top hat. He's just wearing a top hat everywhere. <laughs> Can you imagine thought of a top hat as the Sherlock Holmes hat? But that's the other thing that gets lost in most adaptations. Like, my boy knows how to dress. He knows how to dress for the occasion because that's the way to blend in. That's the way to get information is, like, to have a nice little top hat that just has his deer stalker. And that's fine. We didn't talk about the amazing smoking jackets at the beginning of the film. <laughs> They're so good. The costume again, this is all good. All the Norfolk jackets are fantastic. Everyone yeah. should wear a Norfolk jacket. I also love the the outfit that Henry Baskerville arrives in London with, like the all check suit. It is so good. It's such a good look. I don't think we did this in the intro at the beginning, but you work in the costume world in theater. Yes, I am a costume technician, so I'm very passionate about historical costuming, especially menswear. What do you think the best fit in the movie is? For what the character is in this movie, and for what we're conveying to an audience that's kind of displaced from the era, I think Watson's little, like, knicker outfit at the end is actually really well done, because it does also emphasize his character of just like, oh, hello, I'm here, oh, I get knocked over, oh, dear me. The other thing I want to mention about the old peddler scene is that I'm also unclear on why he needs to talk to these people. Like, Sherlock doesn't learn anything from this scene, from from bumbling into this moment. So it's unclear why he does it, except for to show off later until the audience knows that he's on the moor. Because, because this 
a subterfuge is revealed in the next scene. So it's just set up for next scene's payoff, effectively. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't make any sense why the character would do this. But one of the things that he does is he pulls out a sheepdog whistle and blows it. And I was like, oh, he's gonna he's like he's like using a dog whistle, and this is like a movie about a dog, and it's gonna come up later, or like he's gonna see if the dog reacts, or like it's just nope, nothing, none of that happens. It's just irrelevant. Just he's just doing bits. <laughs> and this was the first moment that I was like, okay, I'm really loving Basil Rathbone as. Sherlock. Because he's a little shit. He's a little shit. He's a little tr- he's a troll. He's such a troll. And we got a, we got a lot of that in the next scene. Yes! Like in the book, this is the reveal of the fact that Sherlock Holmes is, is in the story. Right. Watson gets an anonymous note that says if you want help solving the case, come out to the Paleolithic Stone Homes uh, at this time or place or whatever. Um, and he goes, and there's a note in there which says... Sit down and make yourself comfortable. Yes. Oh, actually, two things happen in between him getting the note and him arriving at the cave. In quick succession, we get two, like, very little plot points. The bearded man shows up at the door of the house, (laughs) and Mrs. Berryman gives him a bundle of something. A baby. It's It's a baby. It could be a baby. <laughs> and then Mr. Stapleton carriages by and is chatting with Berryman and finds out that Henry is also out on the moor somewhere. Set up, set up, set up. Okay, so Watson's in the cave and the peddler walks in and Watson's like, I got your note. There's something you want me to hear. And he says, I only want you to hear this zither, sir. <laughs> and he pulls out an instrument and starts playing. <laughs> Such a troll. And he doesn't give up the bit for like a, for like a couple lines. Right. Well, the peddler is like, what's your name? And Watson's like, I'm Sherlock Holmes, the greatest detective. And then the peddler, now Sherlock is like, well, then I must be Watson. And then to cap it off, to cap <laughs> off him being a little shit. The pe- Watson is like super bad that his boyfriend didn't tell him that he was coming. And Watson's like, well, at least you didn't bring your blasted violin to really hammer it all in. And and Sherlock's like, oh, but a contrary, I did. And then starts playing. He's such a little shit. Actually, this is what most people get at them having any kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. Because, like, this whole scene is just, like, they're kind of an old married couple. Like, Watson is kind of done with him. And Sherlock's like, I, I know you're annoyed, but I could be more annoying. <laughs> And if that isn't love, I don't know what it is. But, but my favorite part about this is, is like, despite the fact that he's being outwardly annoying, he has brought, like, like a whole meal for Watson. Uh, and he's like, he should, like, eat that and calm down and then we'll talk. Because <laughs> he knows him that well. And then the scene actually cuts to after Watson has finished eating, before it continues. Which, like, is not an element of the character and, like, in the context of them making him a fat comic character, feels a little like gross. They're like, and he needs to eat to calm down. But from the perspective of the relationship, I love that Sherlock knows him well enough to be like, all right, eat something. I know you're pissed off. Eat something. Then we'll talk. <laughs> Lower your blood sugar. Right. But yeah, that was the moment where I was like, oh, Nigel is, even though this is the first one, he's already my favorite because he's just a troll. They leave the cave. And then basically immediately we see the hound. Yes. In fact, we see the hound push a man off a cliff, mm-hmm. which 
which also doesn't happen in the book. Let's talk about the hound for a second. The hound looks like a normal dog. It's just a guy. I mean, it definitely is a dog, but <laughs> can you imagine if it was just a guy in a dog? <laughs> in a trench coat. In a trench coat. It's, yeah, it's just a dog in the book. We don't see, quote-unquote, the hound until the very end. It's this long build-up, and the hound shows up glowing and spitting fire. It's very frightening. And, like, it's it's just a dog. Yeah. It's, it's just a big dog. He's just a big dog. Pushes a man off a cliff. Right. Corella style. Yes. Good reference. Thank you. And then, so, Holmes and Watson are like, because he's wearing Henry Baskerville's clothes, Watson's like, Sir Henry was Bush. So they go to the body. They see the clothes and like, ah, Sir Henry's dead. They flip over the body and it's the bearded man from the moor. Yeah. And they kind of, you know, hypothesize. Well, Holmes hypothesizes like, well, yes, because the the boot, the missing boot from the beginning. Right. Because he's dressed in Henry's clothes and he's like, well, this is the Notting Hill murderer, of course, because Sherlock knows. But he doesn't explain how he knows. He just does know. Nor how the rest of us are supposed to know or have any context for this. Like, I mean, I guess it's a murder and it has a name, so we can kind of assume, but right. still. Right. So they go back to the house. He's like, Mrs. Berryman, I have some bad news. Uh, and she's like, they got him. They got him. And she's like, no, he's beyond that now. That was that was sad. I I was like, oh poor girl. He also doesn't explain how he knows that Mrs. Berryman is related to the convict, which he also seems to know. Which is a change from the book. It's a change from the book because like Watson gets to sleuth that out in the book. Then after this, you know, Sherlock's like, I'm on my way to figuring out the case, and he notices something. He notices a painting of another Baskerville. With a beard and creepy eyes. Hugo. And, uh, Hugo. Right, the OG. The OG. From, from the beginning of the movie. Who is played by a different actor than who plays Stapleton? But he re- later references the portrait and says that it looks like Stapleton. <laughs> later when this comes up, they do a close-up of the portrait's eyes, and then they cut to a portrait of Stapleton's eyes. And I don't think they look that similar. Wait a minute. They're played by two different actors. I literally just assumed the entire time it was the same guy because that would make sense if we wanted them to look alike. Nope, different people. That's insane. That's They paid an extra actor when they didn't need to. That's wild! Why would you do that? Especially if the whole bit is like, oh, it's the evil man reincarnated. Right. Right. Sherlock says to Henry, in reference to the murderer having died on the moor, your troubles are over. You don't have to worry anymore. <laughs> I guess this one's solved. And I'm going back to London, and so is Watson. And he also says earlier to John Stapleton, who just appears, you know, after they find the body of the the, the dead the dead convict, you know, Holmes is like, yeah, we're going back to London tomorrow. <laughs> right, which is the same double cross in the book. He's like, I don't want anyone to think that we're in town. But in the book, he tells Henry that he's, he will still solve the case and that he has to follow his exact orders. And his exact orders are to go to dine with the Stapletons 
and then send his carriage back and leave mm-hmm. by walking across the moor so that there'll be an attack from him. Right. But in this version, he just tells him to rest easy and assumes he'll walk across the moor alone at night, which is crazy. It's not too crazy because he does do it. He does do it. But the reason he does it doesn't even make any sense. We're jumping ahead. What happens is that <laughs> Henry and Beryl, which is Miss Stapleton's name, are going to be wed and leave the county like tomorrow for their honeymoon. Mm-hmm. And they're having a like engagement pre-wedding dinner. At- they're having a fourth date. They're having their fourth date, which is the pre-wedding dinner. <laughs> and after the dinner, Dr. Mortimer and Franklin both offer Henry a ride home, but he declines so that he can stay behind and have like a sweet moment with Ms. Stapleton before their wedding. Just like a just like a kiss goodnight situation. But he's a baron and he should have like he should have his own carriage. Yeah, but but, but Sherlock said it was safe. But so... Sherlock said it was safe. And for narrative reasons. Also, Sherlock and Watson actually leave the county because in the book they just like they just say that they're going to, and then they go to the train station to pick up Lestrade. And in this version, they actually get on a train and get like halfway to London, and then get off and switch trains, <laughs> which like almost ruins everything because they get a carriage and the wheel breaks, and then they have to run for three miles across the moor while the climax is happening. Right. So also, even though we've we've been like in the audience fairly in the dark about who the murderer is, not really. <laughs> well, no, but there's lots of suspicious people about. You know, the Berrymans are still weird. Stapleton's weird, but not you know. Doctor Mortimer's weird. His wife has a connection to the occult. It, it, it's Stapleton. Well, of course it's Stapleton because at this point we like see him do evil shit. Yes. Yeah. Instead of like waiting to reveal it later, he like goes to the secret compartment, the secret boot compartment that everybody has in their <laughs> writing desk. He takes that as the secret boot, and then he goes to the crypt where the dog is. He keeps the dog in a crypt. There's some great dog acting here from, from the dog. Right. Give him a dog Oscar. Mm-hmm. I found out when I was reading about this film that in press materials, they said that the dog was named Chief, but he wasn't. Um, the dog they used in the movie was named Blitzen. But they were worried it sounded too German because it was 1939. So one of Santa's reindeers was the Hound of the Baskervilles. Was the Hound of the Baskervilles. And so John releases the Hound. Right. So And then we're like just cutting between everybody in different parts of the moor. So Sherlock and Watson are racing through the night to get to Henry. The Hound is chasing after him. Stapleton's hanging around. And Henry is crossing the moor and hearing the hound noises and getting scared. It's the same three sets. Yeah, they made a lot of fake rocks. They look really fake. And then also, Ms. Stapleton realizes that her brother isn't home and rushes out in a... Nightgown and... Evening dress. Yeah. Is that what it's called? She's in a nightgown and dressing robe. Yeah. Yeah, dressing robe. We don't see her again until the end of the movie, but presumably she's out there too. And the hound finds Henry. And, like, attacks him. Yeah. For a good while. For a good while. There's a long, like, dog v. man fight, which really which really underlines the inefficiency of using a dog as a murder weapon. I mean, I'm not gonna lie, that dog was going at him. Oh, yeah. I don't know how they filmed this. I, I have to imagine there's some unethical shit happening in terms of the treatment of this animal. And happening either to the actor or to the stuntman who had to wear these clothing. Right. Yeah. 
it's it's the sort of thing that I don't think you'd see someone film today. I think they would fake it, but it's like full body wide shot of a dog attacking a man over and over again. And like it's it's long. It is really long. Like amazing, he came away with two scratches after that whole ordeal. Yeah. Oh, and I guess one one hand. It, his hand, yeah, his hand's a little bruised. I'm not sure. It, it's fine later, right? Literally, no, because the bad guy goes to hand Henry the poison, but his hand is bandaged, so he can't take the poison. So he has to have it in the other hand, which like buys more time for the suspense right. and the drama. I do want to say one more thing about the dog v man fight. Watson and Sherlock are taking their sweet old time. Like, they if, are. If this was real life, Henry's dead. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because the whole point is that the dog is being kept hungry and will attack whoever. And then he just, like, batters at him a little bit. <laughs> like, he scratches him a little bit. He seems, like, completely fine, basically. He's yeah. just a little scratched up. That was... Also, like, the idea that the dog would just go directly straight and not be like, oh, a human behind me. But I guess also, it's like, they're friends. That's tangential. But, but also the idea is that like he's smelling the boot and then he's going after the smell. But Stapleton throws the boot in the path of the dog. So the dog would just pick up the boot and bring it back. Like they're just playing fetch. <laughs> just a quick little game before you just murder. A quick little game. After so they shoot the dog dead. Yeah. Like in the book. Watson and Holmes. Well, Watson Holmes, Holmes mostly. Yes. Watson just shoots and Yeah, I, I think we assume Watson misses. Yeah. <laughs> Safe assumption. Right. They split up for no reason. Holmes sends Watson to bring Henry back to Basketball Hall to get bandaged up. Mm -hmm. And then he's like, I'm going to trace this thing. So he follows the footprints of the dog. He finds that it's dead. He follows the footprints of the dog further to the crypt. Stapleton is like following him the whole time. With a gun. With a gun. He steps down into the crypt which is crazy. And then what Stapleton should do is shoot him because he could close the crypt and they'd never find the body. Instead, instead he closes the door of the crypt and locks it. And then he doesn't even shoot through the wood door on top of the crypt where he knows Sherlock Holmes is. He just leaves and he also doesn't put the stone back on top of the wood door of the crypt, presumably, because Sherlock immediately starts prying apart the wood. Some Listen, if there's one thing we know about Stapleton, it's that he does not think anything through. He is not a man for the long game. No, really, it's a miracle he killed Sir Charles Baskerville in the first place. <laughs> he got lucky. I mean, we have a sense of him in the book as, like, being a, a moment Sherlock calls him a foeman worthy of my steel. Sherlock in the book is like, he's the smartest criminal I've ever faced or one of the smartest criminals I've ever faced. He's anticipating my, my moves and, and hiding his crimes perfectly. And the Stapleton we get in this movie is sort of like, I'm done with my hobby of collecting butterflies. Now I'll go back to my hobby of killing the basketballs. <laughs> I, I found it more like he was like playing his own version of 3d chess and, like, just not putting it together and just, like, going with the flow. He was like, well, I did it. And I'm going to get away with it. 
and nothing else will happen. Well, right, because the thing is, like, he now gets sloppy. So he's locked Sherlock in the crypt. He goes to Basketball Hall. He relieves Dr. Watson. He says, I just ran into Sherlock on the moor. He needs your help. Go get him. And sends Watson out to find Sherlock. And then is like, I'll take over because I'm also a bit of a doctor. I can de- help Henry. A, a doctor at what? Butterflies? <laughs> he's a veterinarian. <laughs> <laughs> And then he doesn't walk in with a bag. There's just is a bag lying on the table, which has poison in it. Apparently Watson carries poison with him. That tracks. <laughs> he puts poison in a glass and hands it to Henry and is like, drink this. It'll, it's a little bitter, but it'll help you because you've lost blood or whatever. This is crazy. This is a crazy thing to do because like, like what would he say? Everyone would be like, we left him alone with you and he drank something and now he's dead. Would he be like, oh, he, it was the blood loss that killed him? Like, feel, what, what's the plan here? I feel like he assumed he'd just take the glass and clean it out and then be like, I didn't give him anything. He died of his wounds or whatever. But depending on what the poison was, I feel like they had autopsies back in back in that day. Well, not in Dartmoor, because autopsies community meeting where they all, <laughs> they all vote on how they think somebody died and then that's the official report. It's always the hound. It's just everybody dies of the hound. So Henry's about to drink the poison and then Sherlock comes in and is like, Henry, how you doing, buddy? Knocks the glass out of Henry's hand. They're like, oh, how clumsy. The real Watson there. Right. This is fun because in the book, when Sherlock returns to the narrative, he's like, hello, Watson, good to see you. Stapleton is the murderer. And in this one, we get like a, we actually get like a real detective story ending where he like puts the deductions together and then goes and then names the man. Right. Everybody comes into the room to check on Henry. Right. And then they don't spend as much time on it as they can because as they could, because like, there's a lot of deductions that we just never get explained Mm -hmm. because he really, it all boils down to him being like the painting kind of looks like Stapleton. (laughs) And they're like, that's right. Seize him. I checked the eyes. I checked his eyes. They're the same eyes. Right, therefore he is a murderer. Real eyes, real eyes. Real lies. <laughs> and then Stapleton's like, yeah, it's me. I'm gonna pull a gun out. You're gonna let me go. But I do love also the, like, we in the audience know Stapleton is the murderer because we've seen him doing crimes. But I love, like, having him in the background of Sherlock getting ready to tell everybody. Like, it's fun to have have him in the scene. I enjoyed that. Yeah. So he pulls up the gun and is yeah. Actually, he says, you can't arrest me, Holmes. Which is so true, Bestie. (laughs) Like, Holmes has no jurisdiction. He is not a police officer. (laughs) He cannot do anything. And as far as we know, up until this point in the movie, he's made no arrangement with police. He's just vigilanteing it. (laughs) So I'm like, yeah, know your rights, Stapleton. That's right. (laughs) Holmes cannot arrest you. But he pulls out a gun, he runs into... Watson. Fucking Watson. Immediately outside the front door, Watson has returned from looking for Sherlock, presumably. <laughs> and he runs into Watson. And Watson says something to the equivalent of like, sorry, old boy. <laughs> yeah. Let's him through. And lets him well, I mean, and like and, and like Watson doesn't know that Stapleton is suspicious, but he probably should be suspicious of a man running out of Baskerville Hall after his years of Working with Sherlock Holmes. No, not this Watson. Not this Watson. Because Sherlock is like, hey, that's our man. And then Sherlock says, 
well, you know, I've posted constables on the main roads, and if he doesn't take the roads, he'll have to take the mire. So we're done here. I guess that situation has resolved itself. And basically, the movie ends. Yeah, right there. We don't see Stapleton get caught. We don't know that he gets brought to justice. There's no like falling action. Holmes is like, I'm gonna go to bed. <laughs> well, not only is he gonna go to bed, but he's he's going to go do cocaine. He, the last line of the film, he goes, Watson, the needle. I forgot. That's such a wild way to end. Like, and how the, bonkers. Well, the, thing is, the thing is, they cut it from the film. So the the film was re-released in the 70s, and they, they put back in that line, but it was cut by censors in the 30s. So audiences in the 30s didn't see that line as part of the film. Because it almost, like, implies, oh, we're keeping Watson around for the drugs. They're going to do drugs together. Right. Or the premise is that Watson, as a doctor, can administer drugs to Holmes, and that's why they're friends. <laughs> He's just Holmes is just an addict, and he moved in with his dealer. You know, like when you're hanging out with your local weed dealer, because they're your weed dealer. Right, and part of you thinks, wouldn't it be easier if you just moved in? <laughs> and we solved crimes. To- Someone should do that. Someone should make a version of this that's like, weed dealer and friend go solve crimes. Somebody calls Snoop Dogg. It's Snoop Dogg and Martha Stewart. That's <laughs> Martha Stewart's the dealer. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. Thought I'd watch that though, huh? So that's the Hound of the Baskervilles, nineteen thirty nine. Let's let's do a round of general thoughts. It is not a very good adaptation of the book. I really like Basil Rathbone. And I think he carries the movie, because frankly, I think if they had weaker homes, it would not have done as well. And also, the thing I read on Nigel Bruce's Wikipedia page about his portrayal of Watson was that their relationship and dynamic is what like made Watson a more important character in adaptations going forward. Because in the like few adaptations there have been for that, it was mostly like Holmes-centric, and Watson was just kind of there. So this made them more of a duo in popular culture. Yeah, there certainly is a way to read a lot of the stories where it's just like Watson is around to record the stories, which are Sherlock Holmes stories. And I I can see like the shifting to be Sherlock and Watson stories. I mean, I think it's it helps also that like Hound of the Baskervilles has got to be one of the most Watson centric stories because Sherlock leaves the narrative for a chunk of it. And Watson has to do sleuthing. In this version, he doesn't do so much sleuthing. Thing, <laughs> things just kind of happen to him. Um, and, and he makes a noise of like excitement or astonishment at it. Yeah. But I can certainly see that. And they, they were friends in real life. I think this film is interesting because there are some impulses it has that I really like. I really like that that the convict subplot is played for for more ongoing tension throughout, although I think it could be done better, as you point out. But then, like, everything else cuts against that. Like, I dislike that we get into this weird romance territory where suddenly it's about these two pretty people who are not really relevant to the case in this version and them having a burgeoning romance. I don't like that Sherlock shows up as a peddler because I think it's, like, the opposite choice. Like, in the in the novel, The Presence of Sherlock as another figure on, on the moor who we don't know the identity of for a while is a source of tension. And in this one, it was just like, 
And there's a goofball. There's a clown. Isn't that fun? So I'm really shocked when I was reading about this movie that like people at the time thought it was really scary. And even in 2001, it made a list of like the hundred most thrilling movies. And I don't get that from this movie. I think the hound is just a dog. I never felt that invested in the characters (laughs) and their happiness. I'll also say it's quick. Yes. It's under 90 minutes. I think it's an hour 15. (laughs) And it it sails along. (laughs) It's not an unenjoyable film. I really liked it. I had a lot of fun with it. I... (laughs) Yes, it's not book accurate. But I didn't expect it to be even in terms of like the 30s because we got we got to think of the haze code at this time so there's probably some like creepy things in the novel that they just couldn't do i also wonder if the haze code impacted the stapleton's relationships bigamy and why laura or um why the other woman isn't it yeah yeah, right, right. They don't ever have to deal with it. Laura Lyons exists in the book to explain why Sir Charles was out of the house late at night <laughs> near the moor anyway. And what you're suggesting is that the relationship that Stapleton is having, where he's leading on a woman while he's married to a woman who's posing as his sister, is like scandalous enough that you probably couldn't depict it in a movie in the late 30s. I think it's an enjoyable film. Good film, bad adaptation. And I don't know that it has to be like a perfect record of the book. I think that that inherently when you're adapting something, you have to make adjustments for the screen. I just think that some of the adjustments they made didn't make sense. I think a lot of them did. I think that like shortening the timeline and combining events, a lot of those things I thought made good sense. Where it's like multiple days that we're seeing Barry Moore in the novel go to the window and then we like have to meet Mortimer and find out one piece of information then meet Stapleton and find out one piece of information and those things have all like been tightened up really nicely like I think it's it's well written in that sense but but I I think probably the most negative effect it had on the Holmes canon and adaptations is what it did to Watson yeah and we'll see I mean this is the beginning of our exploration right plus like this was before noir and like murder mysteries being more common in cinema. So I think it was probably shorter because I think they might have figured that people didn't want to see those types of movies at the time. You know, I I think people wanted to see like the seven hour epic of Gone with the Wind or the three and a half hour musical Wizard of Oz. Yeah, I mean, I think it's telling that they don't have the faith in the popularity of the story to just do Hound of the Baskervilles, that they have to do this, like, romance thing. And when you look at, like, posters of the film, it's pretty clear that they're like, this is a story about these two people who are in love and Sherlock Holmes, who is also there. Mm -hmm. But I don't mind there being a romance. I think, like, it makes sense if you're making a big movie for there to be a romance element in it. I wish the dog was scarier. I wish Watson was smarter. I wish the romance was between Sherlock and Watson. Yeah. not, Not our most... We'll get to that. (laughs) One last thing about the canon to film adaptation. I think this combo really shines in the wartime adaptations, because at least the ones I've seen aren't based on specific stories. It's more just whole cloth reinventing, which I think works really well, especially for the dynamic they established with 
Sherlock and Watson? Yeah, the thing you're referencing is, I think, what makes the Rathbone Bruce film adaptations interesting is that 20th Century Fox made two of them, and then they lost interest, and a different company uh, picked up the rights and updated them to be set in the 40s, and they're, like, fighting the Nazis. So it's still Holmes and Watson, but in modern-day London. And not just a different kind of company. This was Universal. Oh, who was known for like the monster movies. So I'm wondering if Universal did this first movie, if it would be more book accurate and more creepy. Interesting. I don't know that we're dealing with a lot of other adaptations of Hound of the Baskervilles this season, but I kind of want to find a compilation to see if anyone got the dog really right. Because the way it's described in the book sounds so cool. I'm gonna Especially look- because they had like a way to actually back it up. Like sometimes when... Arthur Conan Doyle writes things. I'm like, okay, but do you think this is the fairies again? Do you think this is really real? But this one, it was really real. Yeah, we haven't talked about Arthur Conan Doyle's interest in the occult and spiritualism, but the seance in this movie feels like an odd nod to that. A little bit, yeah. Also, maybe his friendship to Harry Houdini. So it's like, oh, Holmes is trapped and he got out. Is he magic? Maybe. Okay, help us rate this movie. So the system is rating the movie on five qualities. Loyalty to the source material, grade of mystery, Britishness, thrill, and queer subtext or LGBTQ. So first one is loyalty. How loyal is this to the book? And this is on out of five. Out of five. I'm going to give it a three. We'll start the bidding at three. Do I hear three, three, three here? I'm actually going to say a two. Really? I think it's pretty low. Oh, I think they do most of the major beats. I, I'd i say three. I'd even go higher. So since I'd go higher, maybe we, we all meet in the middle of three? Sure. I think they get most of the main ideas there. I think they get most of the main ideas. I just think it's so confined and like there's just so more, much added on mm-hmm. that... The stuff from the book just doesn't feel as large as the love plot. Yeah, totally. Second one is grade of mystery. So how how compelling was the mystery? I think Hound has this problem where even in the book, like the whole middle of the story is like the mystery is not developing in any sense. Just like stuff is happening. And then at the end, the mystery gets solved. This... I thought had like tension throughout. I think this is a place where I want someone to adapt more liberally. I would love there to be a version where we understood there to actually be a threat against Sir Henry once he arrived at Baskerville Hall. Hmm. Because like he's having a romance and there's a peddler in town and <laughs> they're having a seance for some reason. Like, you know, even though I think there are elements of it that are tense, I feel like the mystery itself doesn't develop until Sherlock comes and solves it. And I don't like that he doesn't explain most of the deductions. He just tells you what the answer is a little bit. Yeah, it, it, the mystery is very much like backseat to everything else. And I would honestly give it a two because of that. And I think the way the mystery develops, like you were saying, the way the mystery develops, like we don't get the full payoff at the end because everything is so disjointed. So I, I agree with the two. It's, yeah, it's such a short movie. I, I wish they had just, like, 
given us a five minute scene where he walked us through all deductions, like the way that we do expect now where we get like flashbacks to all the moments and you know, and now you can see Stapleton in the scene planning things. I, mean, I like that version of the mystery denouement. Or give us like a Tim Curry and Clue moment. Where he <laughs> runs around reenacting the whole thing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you said two? Two. You said two? I said two. Okay, I, I will agree with the wisdom of the crowd. Good two. Britishness. It's pretty fucking British, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed! <laughs> It's so British. I actually don't think this is the most British because Sir Henry Baskerville, even though the actor is British, comes across so like square-jawed American hero to me that I feel like it knocks it down a point. It's, I mean, it's produced by an American company. <laughs> and yeah, there's something about the romance between Ms. Stapleton and Henry that feels so American to me. Does that, am I, does that make sense? Am I... I, that makes I, a lot of sense. Like, you said that, and I was immediately like, ah, huh? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, you talking about Sir Henry, even though he's British, feeling like like the strapping young American boy, that makes a lot of sense. I, but then, like, like Sherlock and Watson make up for it. Right, and the setting makes up for it. And- yes, all those fake rocks. Those are British fake rocks. <laughs> There's a British dog. And we never know what time of day it is. So, like, that's pretty fitting. Yeah. <laughs> I'd go three or four. I'd say four. 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 Great. Thrill. That's overall enjoyment of the film. I had a great time. I, I could go four on this. I was like, it ended, I was like, all right. Yeah, I was four or five. I am. I, I'd say four. Four it is, then. And then last... But certainly not least, queer subtext. Not, not the most queer subtext. I think less than the book, certainly. <laughs> queer in terms of like interactions between characters, but Basil is gay as Sherlock. That's a gay Sherlock. That's a queen. Yes, but it almost feels like Watson is like oblivious. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like we're going to see this dynamic a couple times of like, either Sherlock is gay for Watson and Watson doesn't realize, or Watson is gay for Sherlock and Sherlock doesn't realize. I think we'll see that over and over again. Mm. This, I mean, they have that that one moment in the middle where I'm like, they're like kind of an old married couple, but it's really just in one scene in the middle of the movie. Otherwise, it's like, they are roommates and they don't care about each other. Mm. You know? Like, Holmes doesn't seem worried that Watson's out on the moor alone when he is. He at the beginning kind of insults him you know it's not it's not a and they were roommates oh my god they were roommates it's literally just and they were roommates so i could go like one or two on this what do y'all think i would say three okay i was gonna say one i would say three just because of how queer basil is i think he really makes up for it I did not get that as much from him, but willing to compromise two in the middle? Two. Okay, okay. so that gives us a grand total of 15 of a possible... 25. 25. So... A little low. A little low, but not as low as it could have been. No. I, I'm not going to lie. I expected this one to be a lot higher. Yes. You know, because of how uh, famous it is and how, like, Everything that we pretty much know about Sherlock in the modern age comes from this film. And I think that's why it's important for us to 
spend some time at the beginning of this podcast season with Nigel Bruce and Basil Rathbone, uh, who we'll actually be with for the next two episodes. So next episode is one of the radio show episodes they did together. Mm. And the episode following that is one of the Fight the Nazis films, Sherlock Holmes, The Voice of Terror. Ooh. A good one. Good one. I, I'm hopeful that there might be a little more rise in our scores. I hope so, too. Because I think I expected a lot from this one. And it did not meet the requirements that I was thinking of. What are we looking for Voice of Terror to have when we see it? I think I want more grade of mystery. I want it to be an actual mystery, in a sense. Yeah, even though I think of the three stories we've dealt with so far, Hound of the Baskervilles on the page is the most satisfying mystery we've had. I still think we could have a more satisfying mystery. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll hope for that, too. And of course, there can always be more queer subjects. Always. Hopefully, hopefully they can be gayer. They're actually, and they were roommates or in a domestic partnership of some sorts. Yeah. Let's make it happen. Let's make it happen. Eileen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is fun. We've been your Baker Street regulars. And we'll see you next week. Bye.